Okay, so um, we are in week two of this uh, series, Entangled Quantum Informed Prayer. And really, what I'm getting at with that title is really more about this, which is we're trying to get away uh, from a Merlin Genie Santa paradigm of prayer where we're praying to God up there somewhere to come in and break down here somewhere because we recognize there is no up there. It's just here and the expanding universe. God doesn't break in because God can't break in because God is already everywhere. And that changes the way we think about prayer. Uh, which is where we're going today. So I'm following along uh, a little bit loosely uh, with this book, uh, which you can buy for 10 bucks in the back. Hopefully we still have some copies. Uh, and I welcome you to read every day. I, th it's, uh, I think it's good stuff. It's probably a different take on prayer than maybe you thought of before. Uh, and from the feedback I've gotten, it's so far so good. So I will be loosely going with the themes uh, that he provides each week. This week, uh, past week, he was talking about loving God. And so we're going to be talking about that and wonder what that means in our prayer life. But one of the things I asked the author, uh, Bruce Epperly, about um, when I interviewed him a couple weeks ago uh, was how does he help people uh, make this shift away from this kind of a paradigm, asking God for our wish list, to a different form of prayer which is more relational, more friendship-oriented, um, a different paradigm altogether. And he had some really good insights, and I want you to hear it in five minutes. Yeah, and I think that's a big question because I think still the conservative, traditional, classical, whatever term you want to use, Calvinist understanding of prayer is still the one that people opt to, even if they don't believe in it anymore. You know, very intelligent people will, will say, well, I can't pray anymore. Uh, because this is what prayer means to me. Uh, and, and then I'll, I'll say, is, is that the only way we should talk about prayer? Uh, should we talk about prayer either as trying to bend God's will? You know, if we pray enough, God will acquiesce. Uh, should we talk about prayer as God already knows and knows what's best for us and already has decided what's best for us, so prayer becomes somewhat superfluous? Uh, and, uh, and I think still a little bit like the, the current age in, in society, the, the orthodox voices uh, and, and seem to carry the day in the public mind in, in, uh, in the media. You know, uh, the very, a lot, they, they can't imagine a Christian that's not a conservative Christian. They can't imagine a Christian that doesn't um, support uh, book banning and... Uh, uh, you know, uh, opposing LGBTQ issues. They can't imagine that. You tell somebody there's a, you're a Christian, you have to start putting a bunch of adjectives in front of your name just to just so they give, they're not one of them. I oftentimes, when I'm dealing with folk in terms of spiritual direction or counsel or just theological conversation, say, what if, what if the world is, is open-ended? What if the world is still in the process of, of evolving, of growing? What if what you do makes a difference? Uh, what if your voice uh, in some way changes things? What if your prayers are not either the prayers of, of liberal theology that just simply make you feel good, or the prayers of conservative theology 
which either bends God's arm and bends God's will or just simply ratifies what's already done. Um, you know, for example, using the term thy will be done, uh, most of us grew up when thinking that meant um, God's will is going to be victorious and it's, it's, it's going to happen regardless. Uh, whereas at least as I read the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount and, and the Lord's Prayer and as I read Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, God's will is something closer to God's intention, God's hope, God's dream uh, for what could happen. So when I pray thy will be done, I don't pray that uh, God uh, come in like a crusader and destroy all the wicked ones, although I'm tempted, uh, but, uh, but that, that I align myself with God's vision and become a companion with God's vision. Uh, you know, there was an interesting meme uh, on Facebook uh, that, that asked whether or not people who believed in the second coming of Jesus, the literal second coming, should serve in public office. Uh, I'm not going to debate the issues of church and state, uh, separation of church and state, or gathering all the Christians in school around a flagpole or something, and uh, not going to debate that. Uh, but uh, it was interesting because it suggested that that a person who believed in a literal second coming had no real, uh, oh, let's say, preferential option for changing things. That if you believed it had already been decided that, that the last trumpet was already on the calendar for a particular time and place, why would you worry about global climate change? Uh, why would you worry about, uh, you know, issues of justice? Because it's always going to be taken care of, even though, oddly enough, the greatest proponents of, of economic greed are people people who, who have aligned their conservative Christianity with a sort of free-range capitalism, which shouldn't be interfered by anyone. So don't worry about the environment. Jesus is coming again. But boy, in the meantime, let's make lots of money. It's a curious situation. At the beginning of uh, this section, uh, Epperly offers this quote from Alfred North Whitehead. If the modern world is to find God, it must find God through love and not fear. And then Epperly goes on in his introduction to the first section. God loves the world and God's love is empathetic. God experiences the tragic results of global, global climate change and wants to change our ways. We no longer need to be fruitful and multiply as was necessary for our parents in the, in the faith, God calls us to simplicity, stewardship, and sharing the earth with all creation. Following God invites us to love the world God loves, practice simpler lifestyles, and claim our role as companions of creation, gardeners and healers of the world. When I first uh, sat down with Bruce um, at a conference a couple months ago and asked him, hey, what would you say is your first thought on prayer? What's prayer about? And first thing out of his mouth was connection. It's about being connected with God. It's about being in the flow of God, in relationship with God. That's the point. Not, not the wish list, but being in constant contact with the Spirit of God. How many of you would agree with that? 
Yeah, which is why uh, we don't have to wait until church or a certain prayer hour or whatever uh, to, to pray because uh, it's available to us all the time. And that means that almost everything we do uh, can lend itself to a moment of prayer. Uh, and there are greats in our Christian past uh, who do this. Uh, and they do it in sometimes funny ways. Uh, there was one, um, one mystic in particular that uh, you know, celebrated the gift of our created beings and would go on and on. You know, she talks at length about, I think it's a hazelnut, that she just talks so much about this hazelnut and how extraordinary is this hazelnut. And it is if we slow down and wait on it. She'll talk about hands and all this, but then she, then she kind of took a weird turn and started talking about our, our bodies as food processors, that we put things in and then miraculously things come out as well. And so she riffs on that for a while. You know, anything literally can, can be cause for, for prayer and connection. And I think that's, that's really the whole point. Uh, I remember I taught a class many years ago when I first came here, over 20 years ago. And uh, one of the tenets of a particular chapter in the series we were doing uh, talked about loving God as primary. And a person who was attending the class, I'll never forget, said, and it's so, I loved it because it was so authentic and vulnerable and honest. And the, the person just said, well, I can respect God. I can revere God. I can fear God. But I don't know if I can love God. Not sure what to do with that. And that's legit. Because how do we, how do we give you know, the Spirit a big hug? You know what I mean? How do, how do we picture that? And a lot of our images of God are, you know, the guy on the throne, you know, ready to bring down the hammer uh, kind of a thing. And so the answer to that question is, how do we love God? Is simply to love what God loves, to do the things that we see God doing in the world and to love it. And you know, I was at a wedding that I performed a couple weeks ago and uh, the couple and a lot of the wedding party, I'm not really sure where they were theologically. My guess is that most of them didn't really think a lot about spirituality uh, for different reasons. So what I told the couple is, hey, I don't know where you are on loving God or knowing God, but I bet you believe in love. So love, love. Foster love. Lean into love. Because at the end of the day, that's our best definition and understanding of God anyway. That is the primary characteristic of God. Uh, and certainly that was true of Jesus. Well, it turns out that the text that we have um, today before us that many churches, probably millions of churches around the world are using, uh, actually lend themselves to this. So one of the texts that showed up this week has to do with this person who wrote this in Psalm 119. Now, a little backstory on Psalm 119. It's the longest psalm uh, in uh, all of the psalms, all 150. And the poet here uh, started a new poem with every letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's really long. So if you get stuck, like, like your devotional reading for the day is Psalm 119, call in sick, man, because it's going to be an all-day thing, <laughs> right? So, uh, but it's really, really good. So listen to how this person is talking. Now, they're using words about the law, the law of God. And that's just talking about, think, get away from law, because that takes us into weird places. And think about the way of God. So the way, the covenant of God that's been given to Israel. Um, this person is just so excited about how good it's been. So... He says, God, teach me lessons for living so I can stay the course. Give me insight so that I can do what you tell me. My whole life, one long, obedient response. Guide me down the road of your commandments. I love traveling this freeway. 
Give me a bent for your words of wisdom and not for piling up loot. Divert my eyes from toys and trinkets. Invigorate me on the pilgrim way. Affirm your promises to me, promises made to all who fear you. Better word for fear is revere. Deflect the harsh words of any critics, but what you say is always so good. See how hungry I am for your counsel. Preserve my life through your righteous ways. This is a guy who's in love with God. This is a guy who's in love with the, the way of God. And he put it in a poem which became uh, a prayer for us to meditate on and look at. I think Jesus had the same kind of experience. We know nothing about his childhood, really. Uh, we only know what happened with some uh, level of assurance uh, right about the time just before this happened. Uh, right around his baptism, we know that uh, something happened during his baptism that that started his, his earthly ministry, and he ends up here. And kind of what I've been saying for a while is I think he had one of these Satori moments, one of these epiphany moments where he was just overwhelmed by the very presence of God in a way he hadn't experienced before, and it absolutely blew his mind. And he had to leave John the Baptist and all those others that he knew and were all you know, getting together, trying to prepare themselves for whatever God was going to do, and he had to go sort things out. So he goes on this camping trip up in the wilderness and he just sorts it out. And he comes back different than he was before. Like the guy we see in Psalm 119. And he can't stop shutting up about the love and grace of God. And that defined everything that he did. What is the way of God? How do we do this thing? Love was the bottom line all the time. And so this even shows up in one of his teachings because the way of God, which we're invited, we're never coerced to do this. God's always inviting us, luring us, wooing us, calling us forward to say yes or no every step of the way, which means God is constantly morphing along the way with us. It's not written in stone. God doesn't even know the future with exact specificity because God has no idea exactly what we might do in any given moment. So God is constantly wanting our best, loving us because it's who God is. And sometimes we human beings, at least me, uh, sometimes we get into conflict. Am I the only one that's ever gotten into conflict? <laughs> right, so Jesus has some advice about conflict. And actually, it's very loving, the way of God advice. So this is what he says to his disciples. If another member of the church sins against you, and remember, sin is uh, less of a, you know, just a, you know, you, you broke my pencil kind of a thing, but... A good uh, definition for sin is the, the culpable disturbance of shalom. So if shalom is the goal of love, this well-being, this deep holistic thing, connectedness together, we're in harmony and all that, then when somebody does something to mess with that, that's what we're calling sin in large and small ways. So if another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone, not on Twitter, now known as X, <laughs> Not on Facebook, not on Yelp, and not broadcast to your dearest friends, but go alone. And if the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now this last phrase here, let this one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, 
Unfortunately, the church through the ages took this to mean be a jerk. Be a jerk. If they don't agree with you, kick them out. And they forgot who's talking. They forgot it was Jesus who was saying this. Jesus is the one that goes after the one and leaves the 99. Jesus is the one who has the conversation with the Samaritan woman in the well in the heat of the day. Jesus is the one who sends the jerks away who brought an adulterous woman before him, treating her as a pawn, and he calls him on it, and he stays there with her and forgives her before she even asks for it. Jesus is the one who is corrected by a Syrophoenician woman when he's out of town on vacay and, and heals this foreigner's uh, kid. Jesus is the one who brings healing to the Roman soldier's uh, servant's kid. I mean, Jesus, when he says, treat them like Gentiles and sinners, it, the last thing we should think of is license to be a jerk. <laughs> no, it's just the opposite. It may mean that they've gone astray from the way, but, but really, if we're thinking about Jesus here, it means we continue to, to befriend, to say, hey, the door's open. We, we want you in the way. We want you here. We, this is the way that leads to life. So no jerkiness. Uh, no, no, no sheriff badge should be worn by the church in this regard. Uh, there's only one, one person that Jesus says gets the right to judge uh, sin in the world. And that job belongs to the Spirit of God, not to you and to me. Now, if you're anything like me, and I might be the only one, I have not always done a perfect job of following Jesus' approach here. And that's a bummer. That's a bummer for me. It's a bummer for people that I care about that I didn't do it right some of you, I may have done that too, and I'm deeply sorry. But isn't it great that we have a way forward that we can do it differently if we choose? And it's a graceful way. It's trying to show respect every step of the way, all in an effort to woo a person back into the way. Now, Jesus probably didn't say this next thing right at the same time, but uh, the people who edited uh, the Gospel of Matthew at one point uh, threw this in because it made sense to them, and it kind of does. And a separate point, Jesus is remembered as saying, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. Now, I have to take issue uh, with Jesus here. Because... There were two of us in my household Thursday evening watching the Kansas City Chiefs, and we were praying, <laughs> and it did not get answered uh, the way that we had hoped for some reason. And so I started to imagine, because I sent out an email asking you to pray for the Kansas City Chiefs, I started to wonder, who do I need to follow up with? <laughs> and then I recognized that Lynn and I, we share the blame because neither one of us were wearing our Kansas City Chiefs gear. <laughs> Sorry, Kansas City. My apologies. Better luck next week. All right. But if, if this shirt causes you to pray for a certain San Francisco team that is playing currently right now, and you had the faithfulness to come to church anyway, which should get extra points in favor of the Niners, 
So be it. Go ahead and pray. Ignore whatever I'm saying, as if you weren't already. But anyway, uh, feel free to pray for the Niners right now. All right. Uh, and anyway, I, did I get off track? <laughs> okay. So what the heck is Jesus talking about here? Actually, it's, it's really extremely powerful. And again, uh, the church took the wrong turn. They interpreted this historically the wrong way. They looked at, at it as... Well, we are the big deals in town. We're the ones who get to say right and wrong. We get to tell people, if you don't do this, you are going to hell. And they did. And they told people for all kinds of reasons, you're going to hell with great confidence. They were sure of this. However, this is just a little aside. If you were to push any of these theological leaders and ask the question, who are you absolutely certain is in hell if there is a hell? And they would say, I don't know. And yet, so easily can this historical voice of the church say, you're condemned, you're condemned, you're condemned, you're condemned. And even to this day, uh, we still see the remnants of that. Painfully so. Uh, we've seen it with... Women who wanted to be uh, in ministry still today with the Southern Baptist Church, with the Catholic Church, not quite equal. And if you mess with it, you're going against the church, which could get you into big trouble. Uh, divorced persons, that used to be a you know, fast pass to hell, right? And now we're rethinking that and just thinking, oh, I, maybe we were off on that. And of course... LGBTQ uh, equality and, and equity and presence and all that. It's very real right here and now. I think we're supposed to see the reverse of what we've classically thought about this. This doesn't make us sheriffs in that sense. This makes us ambassadors. You know, many years ago when I uh, did the sermon that caused lots of waves about um, marital equality, and I don't I said then, and I believe now, that I don't think same-gender covenant marriage relationships disturb the shalom of God, and therefore God blesses such unions, and I perform such unions. I don't have any problem with that. I don't think God has any problem with that. And at the end of that sermon, I say, today is a day of freedom because of this, because we've been able to see through the eyes of Jesus and say, this is how big the love of God is. It's extraordinary. It's welcoming. We are loosening this thing up so that we're taking the kink out of the hose because you thought that this thing was going to get in the way of God's grace. You no longer were afforded God's grace. We're taking the kink out so that everybody can know that grace flows freely for everyone, that everyone is equally loved forever, period. That's what I think Jesus is getting at. Not that we get to be the sheriffs, but that we get to be those who get to spray down grace with a fire hose everywhere we can and want to a, to a parched and thirsty humanity. That's a much more beautiful image, and that makes so much more sense with the person of Jesus. Remember, the only people he really got in the grill of were those who were jerks, right? The ones who were restricting grace those are the ones that Jesus took issue with repeatedly, consistently. So we see here that there is a way, if, if prayer is about connecting with God, we saw in Psalm 119, 
that that means that we're, when we're you know, in the zone of loving God, we just express it. We can't help ourselves. But being in communion with God, prayer also means that if we're connected with God, that even how we do conflict is informed by this way of God. And how we do conflict is in itself a form of prayer, or at least it can be. It can be this beautiful, redemptive, restorative thing where grace enters in and heals more quickly. There's, there's going to be wounds. There's going to be pain. There's no way around that. But there is a faster way to healing. There are better ways to deal with the stuff that we've got going on. And Jesus is giving a, a kind of a roadmap for that. Well, there's also a, another text that shows up for lots of churches that are looking at it today. It comes from the Apostle Paul in his book, uh, to the Romans, his letter to the Romans, which was a divided church. Uh, they, he had, they had their own jerkiness going on uh, in ancient Rome. And it turns out that the, the Jewish Christians in Rome were being real jerks to the non-Jewish Christians in Rome. Didn't want them at their table, didn't really want them in the church. And Paul, who'd never even been to this church yet, had to take issue with them, which is largely the most important context of the book in Romans to understand. But later on, uh, toward the end, he says this about wisdom, about living your day. He says, don't run up debts except for the huge debt of love you owe each other. When you love others, you complete what the law has been after all along. The law code, don't sleep with another person's spouse, don't take someone's life, don't take what isn't yours, don't always be wanting what you don't have, and any other don't you can think of, finally adds up to this. Love other people as well as you do yourself. You can't go wrong when you love others. When you add up everything in the law code, the sum total is love. But make sure that you don't get so absorbed and exhausted in taking care of all your day-to-day -day obligations that you lose track of the time and doze off, oblivious to God. The night is about over. Dawn is about to break. Be up and awake to what God is doing. God is putting the finishing touches on the salvation work He began when we first believed. We can't afford to waste a minute, must not squander these precious daylight hours in frivolity and indulgence and sleeping around and dissipation and bickering and grabbing everything in sight. Get out of bed and get dressed. Don't, don't loiter. Bleh, don't, oh, all right. Doink. All right. Don't loiter. There it is. And linger. Waiting until the very last minute. Dress yourselves in Christ and be up and about. Now, Paul probably had a vision of mine that was eschatologically, apocalyptically based. He literally thought Jesus was coming back a week from Thursday, and so don't delay, you know, kind of a thing. And I think his cosmology and his understanding of apocalypse was probably off based on his cultural uh, lens and all that stuff. But the point of what he's saying is still legit. Don't waste your time with the non-way stuff. Be centered on the way, which is rooting you into the very source of our lives. Keep breathing. Be In a different letter, Paul says, you know, pray continuously. Pray in all seasons. Pray with thanksgiving. All these things. Uh, because this is what it means to be in relationship with God. Foster the relationship. Get about the things that we need to do. This is what loving God looks like. We know how to do this with people that we love. Uh, when you're deeply in love with a significant other, uh, you don't need to be told to think about, oh, how do I, how do I be in love today? Because you're just going to do it. Uh, if it's your kid, same thing. If it's your parents or a sibling, same thing. If it's your animal, right? Especially if it's a dog. Not sure about cats, but if it's a dog, you get me. 
<laughs> you don't have to you don't have to be coaxed to love your dog or whatever animal you have, right? You just do. And what we're trying to cultivate with our relationship with God is very similar. So that very naturally we can get to a place where we agree with this paraphrase of Jesus' prayer where he said our loving support of holy abba remember that's daddy this loving daddy figure parent figure your presence is here and everywhere may your divine commonwealth come may your will be done through us we're grateful for the gift of food and, and we want to work for all to eat their fill we want to work for a, uh, may we work for a world where mutual grace and respect abound and may we foster shalom everywhere because that's what we want to do and who we want to be. Strengthen us for the work to which we're called. Amen. Make it, may it be so. That's our goal. That's, that's, that's our MO for life. To get us to that, uh, there's one other form of prayer that I think we need to acknowledge. And it, it brings us to this bread and this cup. You will notice, if you're paying any attention at all, uh, that our cracker for the day happens to be a whale. This is a little remembrance uh, two things happening here. It's a remembrance to the Jonah series that we uh, marched through in August. Uh, it's, a, it's a note that we had lots of leftover whale crackers. <laughs> but most importantly, uh, it reminds us that we have the tendency to be just like Jonah. That when we are wooed by God, when we're lured by God, when we're called by God, our first inclination is not to say yes to God, but to go in exactly the opposite direction. To willfully choose to disturb shalom. You know, that's what this symbol ended up becoming about. It started off as Jesus hijacking the Passover elements and just saying, hey guys, every time you drink this cup and eat this bread, just remember me, remember my stories, remember what I'm about so that you can continue on in this vein. And then centuries, and then about a thousand years later, this whole thing got co-opted into Jesus died for our sins so that we can go to heaven. And that became the dominant message of Christianity, which was a wrong turn. It's not that the grace of God isn't there. It's just that we started to look at this and we took so much away from what this represents. Jesus did die for the sins of humanity. But the word for is not maybe what we think. Jesus died because of the sin of humanity at that moment. He died because people in power recognized that Jesus was challenging their power. He was challenging Rome overtly. He was challenging the Jewish authorities without question, boldly, publicly. Uh, and they knew it. And they worked together to bring him about their form of justice, and they did. Humanity does this. You know, when Jesus was on his way to his final week, he looks over Jerusalem and starts to weep, and he says, oh man, how many prophets have you killed Jerusalem? Because humanity has a way of killing the messenger. And Jesus was the messenger of his day, like no other. And so when we think about this, we need to wonder about first our own complicity. And how have we right now, how have we, because if, if, if we're supposed to be in relationship with God, if that's what it is, then we need to be honest with ourselves. Where is shalom not happening around me 
And have I in any way contributed to the perpetual, uh, ongoing nature of the lack of shalom? How have I been a party to it? How have I been complicit with it? And I'm not going down this road of, you know, you put a nail in Jesus' hands every time you do it because that's, that's going the wrong direction. But I want to say that there is a place for us just to be reflective and honest about ourselves and our relationship. Maybe the relationship is intrapersonal. It's with you. That you are in your own way of your own personal shalom. Because you can't accept whatever love is being uh, offered you, wooed toward you, what, whatever. Sometimes we do it to ourselves. All I'm saying is we are human beings and it's a healthy thing to take pause and just look at our lives and ask ourselves, are we in any way complicit of disturbing shalom? Hmm. So if we are, then we recognize that we're flesh and blood. And so I invite you to take the cracker. Recognize that you are a human being. You are fallible. It is possible for us to blow it. And it's just the way it is. So take and eat. But of course, there's another central character in this metaphor and this image and this sacrament and that's Jesus because Jesus was the recipient of that disturbance of disturbance of shalom more than anybody else and he chose the way of God the way of shalom in the face of the exact opposite if it were me if it were you if Jesus was my brother at that time if he was my kid at that time if I was his disciple Maybe. I mean, my name is Peter. I'd probably deny it and run the other way. But uh, I'd like to think that if it was my kid, perhaps, or my wife, and I saw this kind of torture happening, I'd be the one to run out there and try to protect, you know, carry the cross, protect them from the whips, whatever I could do. Don't care if I die. I wish that were the case. And Jesus, you know, he, he didn't raise his voice. He didn't fight back for a purpose. He knew that if he did, if he chose to go anti-shalom in the last moment, the only thing that would do is, would be to validate that system entirely. It would make him look like the insurrectionists they were claiming him to be. Instead, by being silent, by walking, he draws a spotlight on himself that we're still talking about. And he rec helped people recognize all the way till right now that there was an innocent one that was killed for saying truth to the world, even truth about love and grace and acceptance. And our collective humanity wanted nothing to do with it. The way of Jesus, the way of the Spirit of God, the way of Shalom is Shalom. The way we get to Shalom in the world is through Shalom. We don't, we don't get to shalom by heavy-handed stuff. We don't get to shalom by having a big enough military to beat down uh, any enemy. We get to shalom with shalom. It is the only way. You don't get to love except with and through love. That same spirit that coursed through Jesus courses through our veins. It is with us. 
It is in us. It is calling us, luring us, wooing us, loving us toward shalom, with shalom. Never coercive, never saying you must or else, but saying if you want a piece of shalom, it's there for the taking. It is the roadmap to shalom everywhere you go. If you're in for that, take and drink. And now, having identified ourselves with the two primary characters in this story, our own struggle as human beings uh, to, to do the right thing at times, and our capacity to be as Jesus and to live out shalom in all of our ways. For those of us who dream to be more and more like Jesus, let's say this prayer out loud together. Our loving, supportive, holy Abba, your presence is here and everywhere. May your divine commonwealth come. May your will be done through us. We are grateful for the gift of food and work for all to eat their fill. May we work for a world where mutual grace and respect abound. May we foster shalom everywhere. Strengthen us for the work to which we're called. Amen. May it be so. And finally, a benediction from the Apostle Paul, who at the end of his letter to the Romans said these two prayers to them. They're, they're prayers of May, which means they're sort of like his, his hope and dream for the people. He says first, may your... I'll show you what it says. All right. He says first, may your dependably, steady, and warmly personable, personal God develop maturity in you so that you get along with each other as well as Jesus gets along with us all. Remember, he's talking to a divided church, so he's praying that that will be gone. Then we'll be a choir, not our voices only, but our very lives singing in harmony in a stunning anthem to the God and Father of our Master Jesus. Masterful. Oh, may the God of green hope fill you up with joy, fill you up with peace, so that your believing lives filled with the life-giving energy of the Holy Spirit will brim over with hope. Amen. Thanks for coming. Have a great week. See you next week.